Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As we read this passage, I'd like you to read this passage through the lens of, of what this passage has to teach us about the two natures of Christ. Christ's human nature and his divine nature. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. The Apostle Paul says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from a selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please look with me in your order of worship at the confessional reading element. This morning, we are confessing together Belgic Confession, Article 19. Belgic Confession, Article 19. As always, we will recite this article together as a congregation. And so, Christian, what do you believe about the two natures of Christ? We believe that by being thus conceived, the person of the Son has been inseparably united and joined together with a human nature in such a way that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in a single person with each nature retaining its own distinct properties. Thus, his divine nature has always remained uncreated, without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. His human nature has not lost its properties, but continues to have those of a creature. It has a beginning of days. It is of a finite nature, and retains all things that belongs to a real body. 
And even though he, by his resurrection, gave it immortality, that nonetheless did not change the reality of his human nature. For our salvation and resurrection depend also on the reality of his body. But these two natures are so united together in one person that they are not even separated by his death. So then, what he committed to his father when he died was a real human spirit which left his body. But meanwhile, his divine nature remained united with his human nature, even when he was lying in the grave. And his deity never ceased to be in him, just as it was in him when he was a little child, though for a while it did not show itself as such. These are the reasons why we confess him to be true God and true man. True God in order to conquer death by his power and true man that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. Let us pray and ask that the Lord would bless his word to us this morning. Merciful Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us um, in your book of creation, which is that most elegant book in which all creatures serve to point to your existence and your power and your glory and your justice. But we thank you most of all in this moment that you have also revealed yourself to us in Holy Scripture. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would not be mere hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, boys and girls, God has given us both um, mouths and hearts. He has made us with mouths and hearts. What are we called to do with those mouths and hearts? Andia? Yes, William? Believe and confess. We are called to believe and confess that God is what? What is God? What is God? Yes. Single, simple, and spiritual. How do we come to know this single and simple spiritual being called God? Violet? Word and creation. Speaking of God's word or the Bible, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? What is the Bible? Yes, Wyatt? The inspired word of God. Very good. And because God's word is inspired, what else is it? authoritative and sufficient. So because it's God's word, it's inspired, it's consequently authoritative and sufficient. Now God's word is all about our triune God. What is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? Isaiah? One essence and three persons. Now still thinking about the Trinity, who is Jesus Christ in relation to the Trinity? Who is Jesus Christ? Annabelle? the eternally begotten Son of God, and who is the Holy Spirit in relation to the Trinity? Who is the Holy Spirit? Yes, Marcus? He eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, our triune God is the author of creation. Boys and girls, what do we believe about creation? What do we believe about creation? Lillian and Beck? God created all things from nothing. God also is the author of providence. What do we believe about providence? What do we believe about providence? 
we believe all providence. Yes? That nothing can be done without God's will. Exactly. Nothing comes by chance, but everything proceeds from the hand of our loving Heavenly Father. Well, God not only created and sustains heavens and the heavens and the earth, but he also created man. What do we believe about the creation of man, boys and girls? Man was created in Violet? Good, yes. Um, that ha- that, that's what happened when they sinned. But before they sinned, man was created in Isaiah? Out of nothing. In his own image. Very good. Yes. Now we've got the whole package deal here. Um, Well, we are currently in the grace section of the confession. And so in the grace section of the confession, the Belgic first begins by speaking about grace and eternity. And so boys and girls, what attributes of God are manifest in election and reprobation? What, What two attributes of God? Do you remember those two attributes, Marcus? Justice and mercy. That's grace and eternity. God's election is God's grace in eternity. Well, the next article talks about God's grace in history. What's God's response to the fall of man, to sin? What's God's response? He makes a covenant. What type of covenant? A covenant, Violet? Of grace. That's God's grace in history. He makes a covenant of grace. Well, we are currently in this section of God's grace defined. God's grace defined in the person of Jesus Christ. So, over a month ago, we... we, Uh, consider article 18 which is about the incarnation incarnation is all about how jesus took upon himself a real human nature and now we are continuing to consider god's grace defined in the person of jesus christ as we look at article 19 and the two natures of christ so we've gone from grace in eternity grace in history to grace defined in the person of jesus christ now what do we believe about the two natures of christ what do we believe about the two natures of christ Are these two natures so separated that it's really two persons that make up Jesus Christ? Or are these natures so intermingled that Jesus really is a demigod or superman? What do we we understand? What do we believe about these two natures of Christ? As we consider the truth of God's word through the lens of Article 19, I'd like to to do this in four main ways. First, we'll consider the definition of this doctrine, and then we'll zero in on the divine nature and the human nature, and then last of all, we will consider how this doctrine is necessary for our salvation. The definition of this doctrine, the divine nature, the human nature, and then last of all, we'll consider how this doctrine is necessary for our salvation. You'll notice that the beginning part of article 19 says this we believe that by being thus conceived the person of the son has been inseparably united and joined together with a human nature in such a way that there are not two sons of god nor two persons but two natures united in a single person with each nature retaining its own distinct properties this long sentence gives us the definition of of this doctrine of the two natures of Christ. Jesus Christ has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, in one person. Jesus has two natures in one person. These natures are inseparable, but yet each nature retains its own distinct properties. They're inseparable, but yet they're distinct. Two natures in one person. 
one way you can think of this is like a less than sign. So like a math class, you have a less than sign, and you have the person of Jesus Christ right here, and then you have the human nature up here and the divine nature down here. Where, uh, where do the human and divine natures intersect? Well, in the person of Jesus Christ. There's no line of communication between the divine and the human. Right? You have the human nature and the divine nature. They intersect at the person of Jesus Christ. There is no line, no arrow connecting the human to the divine. This allows us to see and confess that Jesus has two inseparable but yet distinct natures that are united in the person of Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus, this person of Jesus Christ, acts according to both natures. Right? He acts according to both natures. So we read in the Gospels that Jesus grew hungry. He grew thirsty. He, he experienced the full range of human emotions. He died. He suffered. But we also read in the Gospels that he walked on water, that he raised people from the dead. He miraculously healed those who were sick and ill. He read the minds and intentions of the hearts of other people. Jesus acted according to both natures. At times he acted according to his human nature. At other times he acted according to his divine nature. In all these instances, it's the one person of Jesus Christ acting, but he's acting according to his two natures. And so, what's, what is the definition of this doctrine? Well, simply put, it's that Jesus has two natures in one person. Two natures that are inseparable but yet distinct in one person. Now, you'll notice that the, the confession zeroes in on what we believe about the divine nature. And so we confess, thus, his divine nature has always remained uncreated, without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. Here, the confession is defining for us or explaining for us what, what his divine nature is. It's zeroing in on his divine nature. The confession here is quoting from Hebrews 7, verse 3. In Hebrews 7, verse 3, the author is referring to Melchizedek. You may remember that strange figure that we considered in Genesis 14. He just pops in and out of, of the narrative in Genesis. He doesn't have a genealogy in Genesis, which is highly significant because genealogies are very important in the book of Genesis as God is building his church and continuing to unfold the promise of Genesis 3.15. But Melchizedek has no genealogy. And so it seems as if he has neither the beginning of days or end of life. It seems as if he is eternal. Thus, in this sense, Melchizedek images the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. Jesus remains a priest forever. Jesus is eternal. We also witness Jesus' divine nature in Philippians 2 verse 6, which we recently read. Paul says that Jesus was in the very form or essence of God. Jesus is true God of true God. Now, this morning, um, we talked about what the word everlasting means. It means that something has a beginning but no end. We are everlasting beings. There was a moment in time in which we didn't exist, and there was a moment in time in which we, we began to exist. But we, we all have an everlasting destiny. Well, Jesus is not merely everlasting. He's eternal in his divine nature, which means that he has no beginning and he has no end. 
He stands outside of time. We don't stand outside of time. We exist within time. Jesus, in his divine nature, exists outside of time. Jesus, in his divine nature, looks upon time as something that he created. We can't can't even fully comprehend what that would be like, to look upon time as as God looks upon the earth or the heavens or uh, the oceans. It's just another feature of his creation. Jesus, in his divine nature, is eternal. Well, the confession then turns to consider Jesus' human nature. So what does it mean when, when we read in Scripture that Jesus took upon himself a human nature? Well, Jesus took upon himself a human nature not by subtraction, but by addition. Jesus took upon himself a human nature not by subtraction, but by addition. Jesus didn't lay aside his divinity when he took upon his humanity. That's not what Philippians chapter 2 means when Paul says that Christ emptied himself. No, Paul is saying that Christ humbled himself by adding to his personhood a humanity. So he takes upon himself a human nature not by subtraction, but by addition. He adds to his divine personhood a humanity, a true humanity. Now, Article 19 says that Jesus in his human nature has the beginning of days. Jesus in his human nature is not eternal. Jesus in his human nature is everlasting, though. There was a a point in time where Jesus did not have a human nature. There was a point in time where Jesus' human nature began to exist. Jesus in his human nature has a birthday. But Jesus' human nature is everlasting. He still has a human nature. And he will continue to have a human nature. The confession goes on to say that Jesus' humanity is of a finite nature and retains all that belongs to a real body. Think about that. Jesus' humanity is of a finite nature. Finitude is of the essence of humanity. Jesus retains all that belongs to a real human body. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18 say, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, not in some respects, but in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The author here is saying that Jesus, because Jesus was made like us in every respect, he can save us from our sins. He can make propitiation for our sins. And he can sympathize with us in our human suffering, in our temptations that we experience in this earth or on this earth. Well, think about this question. Does Jesus' resurrection change his humanity? Does Jesus' resurrection change his humanity? Well, Article 19 tells us that in his resurrection or through his resurrection, Jesus' humanity was given um, immortality. However, even after Jesus' resurrection, he still retains all that belongs to a real body. 
Jesus' resurrection did not change the reality of his human nature. So both in Jesus' pre- and post-glorified state, he retains all that belongs to a real body. Jesus wasn't given divine status in his human nature when he rose from the dead. His human nature wasn't transformed into divinity. He continues to be a real human being even after the resurrection, even as he sits at the right hand of God in heaven. Now, this doctrine um, was at the center of the reformational debates over the Lord's Supper. This doctrine was at the center of the reformational debates um, over the Lord's Supper. In fact, this was one of the most debated doctrines in the Reformation. You might ask why. Well, the, the Lutheran church, or the followers of Luther, believed that after the resurrection, Jesus' humanity began to possess the divine quality of omnipresence. So Luther and uh, his followers believe that after the resurrection, Jesus' humanity began to possess the divine quality of omnipresence. This allows them to believe that in the Lord's Supper, Jesus' humanity, his real flesh and blood, is in, with, and under the bread and the wine. This allows them to believe that on Sunday mornings, Jesus' humanity is in a million different places at once. Jesus' humanity takes on the divine quality of omnipresence. Well, the Reformed Church responded to this and said, no, Jesus is like us in every respect, even after the resurrection. His humanity remains a humanity. His humanity never possesses divine qualities or attributes, and thus Jesus cannot, in his humanity, be omnipresent. Yes, according to his divine nature, he's omnipresent, but not according to his human nature. This is why the Reformed Church then stated that in the Lord's Supper, Jesus' flesh doesn't come down, but we, by the Holy Spirit, are lifted up so that millions of believers have communion with Christ at the right hand of God. What one believes about this doctrine, then, necessarily influences one's understanding of how Christ is present in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. Well, the confession now turns to consider two examples from Jesus' life that illustrate the union of these two natures. What are these two examples? Well, the first example is Jesus' death. We read that Jesus' divine nature remained united with his human nature even when he was lying in the grave. Thus, when we read that Jesus gave up his spirit, he was not giving up his divinity. He was merely giving up his human spirit. Even when Jesus' body rested lifeless in the grave, his divine nature was united inseparably to that human nature. So even at Jesus' death, we see the union of these two natures. The second example that the confession gives is from Jesus' childhood. His deity never ceased to be in him just as it was in him when he was a little child. One author uh, puts it well when he says, while Jesus nursed at his mother's breast, he gave food to all flesh. Now that, of course, has a nice ring to it, but it's true. When Jesus nursed at his mother's breast, he gave food to all flesh. When Jesus, in his human nature, was completely dependent upon his mother, 
He, according to his divine nature, was upholding all things by the word of his power. So even when Jesus was a little child, a baby, we see the union of his human and divine natures. Well, why is this doctrine important? Why is this doctrine important to us as Christians? Well, this doctrine is necessary for our salvation. It's necessary for our salvation. You'll notice that the confession concludes by by telling us that Jesus had to be true God in order to conquer death by his power. His divinity was necessary for our salvation. Psalm 49 verse 7 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. No matter how much you love someone, you cannot pay for their sins. No matter how much you love someone, you cannot propitiate the wrath of God for the sins that they commit against a just God. That requires someone who is divine. Jesus needed to be divine in order to conquer death, in order to rescue us from our sins. We also confess that Jesus had to be true man, that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. Remember what we read from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. Jesus had to be made like us in every respect. Why? So that he could make propitiation for our sins. What does the word propitiation mean? It refers to how Jesus was a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for us. How Jesus experienced a circumcision and baptism on the cross. Jesus had to be made like us in every respect so that he could bear the wrath of God for our sins. Our catechism tells us that the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should make satisfaction for sin, but he who is is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. What the catechism is telling us there is that God's justice demands that the same human nature which has committed the sin must be our mediator, must make satisfaction for that sin. That is why Jesus had to be made like us in every respect. Well, earlier the confession also states that our salvation and resurrection depend on the reality of his body. One church father stated, what is not assumed is not redeemed. Jesus had to take upon himself a real body and a real soul if he was to save our bodies and our soul. The same human nature which has sinned must make satisfaction for sin. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ's resurrection guarantees our future bodily resurrection. Again, his resurrection is something that he experienced in his humanity. Again, boys and girls, uh, when you see a train go through a tunnel, you can be assured that wherever that, that front car goes, the caboose is also going to go. Meaning if that front car goes through the tunnel, the caboose will also go through the t- tunnel, as long as the train's moving, of course. Um, why? Well, because the trains are connected. Well, because we are united to Christ, what has happened to him will inevitably happen to us. Where Christ is, we will one day be. Why? Because we are united 
body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, congregation, what do we believe about the two natures of Christ? Christ has both a divine and a human nature, and these divine and human natures, while being distinct, are united in one person. 